Let me ask you this morning a couple questions. There is a, such a thing as called a discipline of anticipation. We have it when we are engaged, anticipating what marriage is going to be like. We have this when we go to see a movie that we've heard a lot about. We have this when we pick up a new book that we've been wanting to read. We have anticipation for a lot of things in our lives. And I'm wondering, a very serious question here, how many of you this morning have a high anticipation of what God is going to speak to you concerning in your life? Have you come this morning anticipating that you're not going to be leaving the same way that you came? It's a skill, it's a discipline that we want to encourage in you and in myself as well. Here's the, here are the questions. I want you to interact with these in your mind. Here we go. How important are material possessions when cancer strikes? How important are material possessions when cancer strikes? Here's another question. What would remain in your soul? Now listen, these are very important questions that gird our mind around truth. What would remain in your soul if everything you owned was taken away from you? Let me ask one more question. Which home are you truly living for? This one on this earth or the one to come in eternity? See, I think we need to be asking these questions, especially because James is going to really confront us with this. So we might as well get a head start on it. But we need to be asking these questions daily as part of a discipline of introspection as we anticipate, God, you're doing something in my life, you're doing something in our lives as a community that is maturing us and making us single-minded. Let me pray and I'll explain what I mean by that. Lord, we need your help this morning. We need divine enablement to understand your word. Your word is eternal, it is inspired, it is supernatural in the sense that it is from you, it is your essence that you breathed out, and it has a purpose in our lives. It shapes us, it changes us, it transforms us, it creates redeemed people of God and a redeemed community of Christ. So Lord, we pray that the word of God would go out into our hearts this morning from James and Lord, that we would discern and that we would chew on it. And Lord, that you would change our hearts. And in Jesus' name, amen. Let me review a little bit, and you'll understand, why I'm, I hope, why I'm asking these questions. James has been writing about trials. Hey, Dan. We love you, brother. All of us do. We all know you well. We love you. I, I miss him so much. I, uh, but not enough for you to come get mad at me, okay? James has been writing about trials in the lives of believers and how to thrive. Now listen, how to thrive instead of just survive trials. He's been giving us wisdom and he's been teaching us that we need. You ready? Listen, everybody look at me. You're all looking at Dan. Everybody look at me. <laughs> Lori's telling him what happened. He'll be all right. We need a right perspective. You remember verse 2, that word consider in the Greek. It means to lead your mind through trials. We should not be... Caught by surprise and unprepared in the midst of trials, we need to lead our mind the truth of God through trials. And when trials come, and oftentimes and most of the time, they come with no anticipation, no preparation. But when they come with no warning, we need to persevere as our faith is tested because it's in our perseverance 
It's in our staying under it, the Greek means, that we are matured. And he makes us, God makes us single-minded rather than double-minded. This is the definition of wisdom. Remember, we described this last week. Wisdom we erroneously define as being knowing the right thing, the right information. Give me the facts and information. Wisdom is much more glorious than that. It's the knowledge of God that creates righteous living for God. That's what wisdom is. It's the divine enablement to endure through trials so that we become doers as well as sayers. Faith and deeds connected. That there would be no division between what we believe and how we behave. That there would be no division between our knowledge of God and our righteous living. That's what wisdom is for. It's a divine gift to be able to make us redemptively living people with knowledge of God. Last week we saw that we're commanded to ask God for this wisdom. God loves to give. Why would we not ask a a gift-giving God for wisdom when trials hit? Wisdom, again, enables us to endure through them. It's the way that, we build, that we're able to connect our knowledge of God with our living for God. And that's where we've been. That was a quick review. We're in the third week of building faith God's way. And this morning it continues. This is still about trials. This is, in, this is part of James' illustration of a particular trial that comes to all people, rich and poor alike. But he's still teaching us how to endure through trials. That's the context. And here it is, chapter 1 of James, verses 9 through 11. Here's what it says. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. What do we learn this morning from James? Number one, we learn the paradox of the rich, poor believer. Now, a paradox is this. I'm going to define it for you simply. A paradox is a truth that is stood onto its head so that it attracts your attention. That's why people use paradoxes. It's a truth inverted or standing on its head so that we take notice of it. James says, here's a paradox. Number one, there's two of them in here. Number one, the brother in humble circumstances ought to, here he flips it, take pride in his high position. See, finances are often a trial for the believer. Money is a trial for the believer. James is writing, here's the context, to believers many of whom were poverty-stricken. Now, I said this in the first service, and we'll say it again, that this is very much, for most of us, a very difficult sermon to be able to get our souls around. Because we don't really know, most of us, what it means to live at or below the poverty level. So this is something where you and I have to work especially hard in learning how to empathize and to be able to put ourselves in the shoes of the people that James is talking about in verse 9. We're going to come into the picture, verse 10. But these people lost their homes. They were living in a land that wasn't their own, all because of why? Why? Faith in Christ. 
And they were being persecuted. They were being scattered because of it. James refers to these brothers as being in, quote, humble circumstances. By the way, friends, the Greek here, very interesting. It means to stay low to the ground. It means to be insignificant in the world's eyes. A person in humble circumstances is a low to the ground person. The valley. The ancient world knew nothing Nothing of what we would call the middle class. About 90% of the Roman Empire lived at or below what we would today consider the poverty level. Now, can you get your minds around that? 90% of everybody in this room right now, if we were to translate this to ourselves, if somehow we were to live out what these scattered believers were living, that would be 90% of us live at or below the poverty level. If I remember correctly, that's $33,000 in this Lehigh Valley. Except in a few urban locations like Corinth, the city of Corinth, you cannot climb the social ladder. You can't come in on the floor level and rise to management in the ancient world. The way that you came into life was the way that you're going to exit life in almost all situations. There is no work hard and you'll get a raise. There is no try harder and develop yourself and you're going to get a better position. This was it. James is offering to these scattered believers, these low to the ground believers, these poor believers in humble circumstances. He's offering them wisdom. This is the context. But wisdom, as we've been teaching, has not accomplished its goal until it unites the truth of God to righteous living. So James says, this is what he's doing. He's producing this in the lives of these scattered believers. And look at your text. He says, take pride in his high position. Some of your translations, I think the, the New American Standard Bible says, say, says glory instead of the word pride. But the word means, and this is so interesting to me, the word means to rejoice. It actually means to boast. So when James is saying to these scattered, low-to-the-ground believers, he's saying boast with joy and confidence in your high position. Those who are poor, he's commanding. Remember I told you that there's 54 imperatives in this Greek text of James. This is another one of them. You are commanded to boast in your height. Not the arrogant boasting of the self-important, what we're accustomed to hearing and seeing and unfortunately doing. Not that type of boasting. But the joyful pride and confidence that a believer has who knows his or her true riches in Christ. Boast that your spiritual bank is full. He's saying to these poor Christians, these low to the ground, beaten down, persecuted, scattered, poverty stricken Christians. He's saying this, have utter unswerving confidence in who you are in Christ. 
George Adams lost his job in an Ohio tile factory, and he moved his family to a suburb of Houston so that they could worship at Joel Osteen's megachurch. Now, friends, listen, I'm going to name you two people this morning. I do not normally do this, but I think if you're going to publicly put your theology out on display, you're open to redemptive criticism. Joel Osteen and Joyce Meyer, I believe they're brother and sister in the Lord, but I think some of their theology is flat-out dangerous. Adams told Time magazine that inspired by Olstein's insistence that one of God's top priorities is to shower blessings on Christians in this lifetime, he marched into a Ford dealership and demanded to know what the top salesman earned, and he got the job. He sold the truck in his first week, and he exclaimed, quote, It's a new day God has given me. I'm on my way to a six-figure income. His ambitions are, according to the magazine article, to buy his dream house. Quote, 25 acres and three bedrooms. We're going to have a schoolhouse. We want horses and ponies for the boys. So we want a horse barn. We want a pond and, uh, and maybe some cattle. I'm dreaming big, he says. But Jesus died for our sins. That was the best gift God could give us. But we have something else. Because I want to follow Jesus and do what he ordained. God wants to support us. Why would an awesome and mighty God want anything less for his children, he concludes in his interview. Joyce Meyer, again, a sister in the Lord, and I think for the most part a very good teacher of the Word of God, says this, Who would want to get in on something where you're miserable, poor, broke, and ugly? And you just have to muddle through until you get to heaven. I believe God wants to give us nice things. Friends, would you forgive me? For what I'm about to say, but this is poor theology. And at best, there are only, there are only two examples. At best, it's poor theology. And I'm only giving you two examples from what is being coined as the prosperity light camp. Here it is. Slip your card of faith into this celestial ATM and make unlimited withdrawals. The poor believers already have a high position. Unimaginable riches in Christ. So James commands them. He commands these destitute, low to the ground, scattered brothers and sisters in Christ to boast from the heights of their true riches. Well, you might ask me, Pastor Tim, what are the true riches in Christ when you're struggling in poverty? Let me tell you what they are. In Christ, you are God's child. You are God's friend. You have been justified. You've been declared innocent of your sins. You've been united with our Lord and Savior. You've been made one with Him through the Spirit of God. In Christ, you have been bought with a great price and you now belong to God and you're a member of Christ's body. In Christ, you're His co-heir. You've received every, every spiritual blessing in Him. What are, what are the riches in Christ? Here they are. You're a saint. You're a holy one. You're adopted as God's child. You have direct access to him through the spirit of God. You're set free from and and forgiven from all your sins, past, present and future. You're complete in Christ. You're forever free from his condemnation. What's it mean to be rich in Christ? It means you're established. It means that you're anointed. It means you're sealed by God, confident of the good work that God has begun, confident that one day he's going to perfect it. He's going to complete it. What's it mean to be rich in Christ? It means in Christ you're a citizen of heaven. It means that you and I are hidden with Christ and God. We don't have a spirit of fear. 
We have a spirit of power. We have a spirit of love. We have a sound mind in Christ. What's it mean to be rich in Christ? You've got endless grace and endless mercy to help in your time of need. And because you were born of God, the evil one, the Bible says, cannot touch you. What's it mean to be rich in Christ? It means that in Christ, you're powerful. It means you're the salt and the light of the earth. It means you're a branch and a channel of his life chosen and appointed by God to bear fruit. It means that we're, we have a personal spirit empowered life for a witness for God. It means we have a purpose in life. It means that we're a temple of God. We're a minister, every one of us, of his reconciliation with sinful men and women. What's it mean to be rich in Christ? It means that we're God's co-workers. We're God's workmanship. He's created us before the foundation of the earth to be filled with good works and living them out. It means in Christ you can do all things through him who strengthens you. That's what it means to be rich in Christ. This is what James is saying to be able to, to, to boast and to be able to take confidence of your true height. It means to know these things because true wisdom takes what I just said and translates them into lives of peace and love. No amount of money can compare to those riches. You cannot buy that. Friends, James commands you and I regardless of our financial worth, to boast confidently with rejoicing in our high position that Christ has given to us. You know what? This is alarming to some, but it's true nonetheless. James did not and does not pity his poor brothers. Did you realize that? He doesn't commiserate. He doesn't say, I'm sorry for your situation. James sees them as spiritually advantaged. To the world, they become what the Bible says, the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. But to God, these poor, low to the ground, scattered, impoverished believers were his lavishly blessed children and exalted to spiritual heights. That's the world's view that we're the scum of the earth. But God says you're on the heights. They were the poor, rich people of God whose trials were clinging them to Christ. That's the first paradox, but there's another one. Number two, the paradox of the poor, rich believers. You know, as the gospel continued to spread, they were scattered for a purpose because in their scattering, they were taking the seeds of the gospel. So God is very much behind these trials. God is very much the one scattering them. And as they continue to spread around the Mediterranean world, some who were believing were rich Jews. They were rich. They were wealthy. So is having money wrong? Is being wealthy wrong? I think all you have to do is read two people in the midst of a plethora of examples, Abraham and Job, and realize money itself is amoral. It's the love of money, the worship of money, the taking and grasping of money that becomes immoral. But James gives us a reminder not to measure our worth by our wealth, nor to depend on them. Wealthy Christians need God's perspective on riches so that they will use it humbly and productively for God's kingdom. Friends, trials enable the wealthy believer to recover that perspective. 
Lee Atwater, the campaign manager for the elderly George Bush in 1998's presidential campaign, he began to reflect. Now listen, remember what I said about trials helping us gain God's perspective. He began to reflect on his life after diagnosed with brain cancer. Here's what he says. The 80s were about acquiring, acquiring wealth, power, prestige. I know I acquired more wealth, power and prestige than most. But you can acquire all you want and still feel empty. What power wouldn't I trade for a little more time with my family? What price wouldn't I pay for an evening with my friends? It took, he says, a deadly illness to put me eye to eye with that truth. But it is a truth that the country caught up in its ruthless ambitions and moral decay can learn on my dime. He calls this immoral quest for power and money, ambition and prestige a tumor of the soul. James says this, verse 10, look at your text with me if you would. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. See, James is exhorting. You all know what exhorting means, right? It means to take a whip to the back of the horse, to motivate movement. James is motivating movement and the rich believers among them that are going through trials. He's reminding the wealthy believers of the temporary, transitory, empty nature of their material blessings. He's saying don't rely on them because they're going to pass away like a wildflower. The rich should take pride. Friends, I hope you're doing this. We are the rich. doesn't matter if you make Thirty-five or 250,000, more or less, we are comfortable, by and large, most of us people. We are the ones in verse 10 and 11. The rich should take pride, rejoice, or boast uh, in the truth of their low position. It's what Jeremiah says, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom and the strong man boast of his strength. Here it is. Or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts takes rejoicing confidence boast about this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. This is what Jeremiah writes. You see, trials help the rich. Trials help us let go of what this world offers and instead cling to the true riches we have in Christ. Because there's something about the world that likes to lure us away little by little, raise after raise. We're not going to increase our lifestyle, but yet we find we did. He says, verse 10, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. Notice what James does here. It's so interesting. He connects the low position of the poor in verse 9 to the reality of the low position of the rich. The poor realize their low position. The rich don't. But in God's eyes, they're all leveled at the foot of the cross. He's teaching us that the rich are great in this world, but in God's world, there's no difference between the rich and the poor believer. This world's wealth is utterly unable to finance joy, inner delight, or satisfaction. It carries no worth for eternal credit. 
But isn't this true? And you, you do not need to respond. But isn't this true? Don't we invest in this world as if it does? Friends, this is a wake up call for all of us, me included. That we are pursuing blindly and madly and frenetically with busyness the things of this world and trials come into our lives to open our eyes and to strip the hold that they have in our hearts and to get us to cling to Christ and his riches. Look at what James says. He uses vivid imagery. He says, verse 11, for the sun rises with scorching heat. Friends, that's just a phrase for trials. When it says the sun rises with scorching heat, he's saying, for trials come with searing power and they wither the plant as blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. The scorching heat, by the way, if you've ever been over in the Middle East, is called the Sirocco. The Sirocco is the searing east wind that blows off the desert. It's much like opening the door of your oven and getting blasted by the furnace. That's what the Sirocco feels like. It can literally scorch plants in days. It's interesting, uh, a week ago, we were restaining and repainting the deck of our house. And our patio table has a Lazy Susan glass round top to it. And so I took that and I lowered it to the ground, the, the lawn, and I let it set there while I repainted the, the lawn. And two to three days later, I lifted it up to put it back up on the table. And there in a perfect round circle was a patch of dead, brown, burnt grass. This is what James is saying. Trials rise like the sun and they scorch. And as the original text literally says, the beauty of its face is destroyed. You know what he's saying? James is saying this. You know what? That new car looks great. That new house is awesome. You just want it so badly. That raise and that job. Who cares how many hours you're going to have to work? Look at the income you're going to get. All of these things look great. But when trials come, the face of their beauty will melt. The seeming beauty of the wealthy is destroyed by the heat of trials. Friends, if a rich believer is pursuing wealth, and maybe some of us are, and if they're pursuing it as their peace and their happiness, then times of trouble will melt your hope away. And I remember reading years ago about a bitterly cold winter day in the Niagara Falls, and a nature observer was watching, and he recorded this incident occurring before his eyes. He saw a great heron catch a fish out of the river, and, it is, and while it was in its uh, mouth, he sat down, settled down, flew down onto a slab of ice that was slowly floating towards the edge of the falls. And he was busying himself with eating its meal. And the nature observer noticed that as that slab of ice got closer and closer to the falls, the rate of its speed picked up. And he wondered, when will the heron fly away? It wasn't until that ice got right to the lip of the falls that its great wings unfurled and began to try to flap away. But unbeknownst to the heron, its feet had become frozen into the ice and went over the side with the ice. Too late, it realized that while consuming its meal, its own death was approaching. Friends, this is too many of us. You know this. 
Some of you right now, I can imagine it because I've done it so often. You're building your defenses in your mind. I know what you're doing. I do it too. And you're rationalizing and you're justifying and you're saying, boy, I hope that person's listening. And all the while, God might possibly be wanting to speak to you in your life. The rich man, James says, will fade away even while he goes about his business. There will be no warning. There's a third point, though, that I think we can learn from here, and it's not quite so obvious. Number three, the beauty of redemptive community. The beauty of redemptive community. Look at verse 9 again, would you? The brother. Look at verse 10. But the one. These are two Christians. A poor example of a a poor believer and a rich believer. But they're both in Christ. The brother and the one. You see, when James discusses the rich and the poor brothers, his intent. Now listen. His purpose is to call us into the practice of community. So we interpret scripture individually. That's the curse of American theology. It's always embedded in community everywhere from Genesis to Revelation. God always gave his scripture for the community's sake. The church brings dignity to the poor by dissolving class distinctions. Friends, listen, there are people in our church that literally wonder how they're going to get food on the table. I know them because I've dealt with them. I've worked with them and we're dealing with benevolence with them. There are people in our church that way. Certainly there are people in our community that way. You see, James sees the scattered poor and the scattered rich as brothers in the family of God that must develop a deep concern for one another. And and the way that that concern develops, this is the beauty of God. The way that they develop is that Jeremy and Pastor Tim both go through trials. And guess what? When trials hit Jeremy and Pastor Tim, both of us struggle. And guess what? When both of us struggle, we need the community to come around us. See, trials are the great leveler for God's people. It doesn't matter if Jeremy makes 200000 and I make 60000 It doesn't matter. It's at the heart level that trials go. Faith in Christ does an equally wonderful thing in the rich believer's life by filling him with true humility, a sense of how little value the world's riches really has. But guess what? Trials have a, have a benefit in the poor believer's life because they're lifted by faith in Christ to the heights of their spiritual riches. As a poor brother forgets his earthly poverty, the rich brother forgets his earthly riches. Trials do this. Faith in Christ makes the two equal, and by doing that, it forms redemptive community. You see, the temptations that these believers faced, both rich and poor, was that wealth was a ticket to a better, easier, more satisfying life. That was the temptation that they all faced. We face it too. But the poor believers were rich in Christ and trials of poverty served to strip them of worldly desires and to boast in their riches. The rich believers were rich in Christ too, but trials served to remind them that their hope was not in their worth. It was not in their possessions because those are going to pass away like that. 
See, the redeemed community could not be powerful if there were divisions in it. This is why Ephesians 4 calls us, verse 4, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and all and in all. There cannot be divisions in redemptive community. Does that mean we create a socialistic environment and everybody has one level of income? Absolutely not. There's nowhere to be found that type of theology in scripture it means that the poor have faith in christ and it means the rich are recovering their hope in christ and they're giving generously and the poor are modeling wonderfully faith see it would be arrogant if we assume that those of us with material prosperity are always in the role of the benevolent giver guys listen the rich need the poor. They need to learn how to have hope in the world to come. This is what community is. Can I close with this? I almost don't. I shouldn't say that because I think sometimes our minds shut off as soon as I say it. Can I open again with this? No, I'm just kidding. Let me, let me, let me sum it up with this and get engaged again, please. Wrestle with this. Trials come to the rich and the poor Christian alike. None of us are exempt. And they fix trials. They fix the eyes of the poor on their eternal riches in Christ, which I've given to you, and there's more besides that, and they are awesome. Trials move the eyes of the rich, most of us, off of our worldly riches, and they refocus our eyes on our true riches in Christ. And friends, it's necessary that we have trials if we're going to learn to live in redemptive community where there are no divisions based on our financial worth. Why do we have trials? James is teaching from chapter 1, the whole context of trials. And he gives an illustration of how trials are impacting the poor and the rich. He gives an illustration of it so that we can apply it. And the way that they apply it is they're making people who like to serve both God and manna, double-minded, by the way. They're making them single-minded to where we want to serve God and desire Him and see riches in the right place. Amen? Stay with us on this journey because James isn't done yet. And he's going to be hitting temptation. And he's going to be hitting the desires that are in every one of our hearts. And we're going to learn how to apply wisdom to that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the attentiveness of this group. Lord, I pray that we would, uh, would apply these truths. And Lord, give us a strength. Enable us through wisdom, Lord, to mature, to endure through trials, and to trust in you, and to know again and again and again our true riches in Christ. They are incredible. Lord, may we live knowing how padded our spiritual bank account is. What confidence, what boasting that gives us. And Lord, I pray that those of us who are pursuing the things of this world, the Bible says that the love of the Father cannot be in those who are loving the world. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to that and help us to live in a way that we are generous to a fault. And in Jesus' name, amen.